0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Throughout history, new technology has always provided some challenges and some opportunities. There have been new devices that make some jobs a little bit obsolete, and in other cases, they redefine what people's jobs could be. Imagine being a painter in the 19th century. You spent most of your life. Training, practicing, developing your craft so that you could capture what important people, places, and things looked like. Until one day, a camera is developed and people say, Hey, you know that picture it took you months to make? Well, this box can do the same thing in a matter of minutes. Now, some people would look at a setback like that and say painting is done. But other people looked at it as an opportunity. And that's where artists like Claude Monet disregarded the old formal rules and structure of the academy, and they shifted the emphasis towards color. They changed the compositional style. They started to make things a little bit looser, even abstract. And in doing so, they completely shifted people's ideas of what art is and what art could be. I feel like who art Ed? We'll to splice it. Who art we'll is go. Mr. Wood? <laughs> art Ed me. Either way, it, it's yes. ambiguous. It works. I, I know a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And joining me today is Courtney Sindlar, the art teacher at Naper Elementary. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. So today we're talking about Claude Monet. And Claude Monet was like one of the first artists I remember learning about. I remember like a parent coming in, um, you know, one of those art appreciation lessons when I was in like second grade. And I just... I was captivated. It was first artist that captured my imagination. Um, what about you? Like, do you have any, like, do you like his work familiar with it? you know,
2: that's kind of, that's why I picked him Yeah. because I, when I was in elementary school, we didn't have art class. And so my teacher, my third grade teacher would do our projects with us like once a month or so. Yeah. And one of them was painting Monet's lily pads. And it just, like, I just loved it. Like you are saying, like, it just is one of those things you look at and you're like, wow, that is so cool.
1: Yeah, it is. But uh, I always like to start with a little bit of context. And with Monet, I think about the world of 200 years ago was so different. I mean, not exactly 200 years ago. He was born in 1840. But when I think about, like, the 19th century, that was kind of like the Industrial Revolution. And most people think of, like, the Industrial Revolution and mechanization and how that impacted lots of different things. But in the arts, there were a lot of innovations that, that I think explain why some of these shifts happened.
2: Mm -hmm. So like,
1: for example, Monet born in 1840, that was just a year after Daguerre sort of released his photographic process. And I say like released the photographic process to the public because he didn't like patent it. I believe like um, the French government gave him like a lifetime pension in exchange for just making that knowledge open source. Um, And so like photography was booming in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I got to think like, if I'm a painter at that time when the camera comes around, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at my competition and I'm thinking, what can I do that, that the camera can't? Yeah. You know? And so like Mm -hmm. color was obviously a big deal then. Color photography was not a thing, but painters were working with color. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: like, that's where I see like the impressionism was a product of that time in so many ways, you know, the shift towards the emphasis on color. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, The other thing I thought was really interesting is, and this is something I don't, like most people don't think of, but the invention of the tube of paint, like, we don't think about that as something that had to be invented, because for us, that's just always been there.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: before then, like, artists, they were gathering and grinding raw materials to make paint. And, mm-hmm. and then they were storing it in, like, glass or popularly for a long time, a pig's bladder, which if you get over, like, the ick factor, that's just also super inconvenient. You know what I mean, and so, like mm-hmm. Monet and the other impressionists they're painting outdoors in plain air as they as they would say, and like you couldn't do that without the tube of paint, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, um <laughs> and i I also just like as the nerd in me is always like when I start to get go down that rabbit hole of like you know the tube of paint, like I always think impressionists and that focus on color. To some extent, it was just like a kid playing with the new materials. Because, like, you look at the blue of water lilies. And it's this Mm -hmm. gorgeous combination. I see, like, some ultramarine, some Prussian blue, some cerulean in there. Like, I see all those different colors out there. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that's just because it became suddenly cheap and easy to get those things. For most of history, for most of history, you couldn't. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Like, uh, like blue, blue has a ridiculous history. I got, I got to do like an episode on just the history of blue, but like uh, up until like the 1820s, you know, it was all about ultramarine. It was 1826. They, they put out like a prize of like 6,000 francs for anyone who could make a synthetic ultramarine because like lapis lazuli stones that they were using to make blue, like ultramarine blue pigment was more valuable than gold because it would take Mm -hmm. like, it would take like a kilogram, a thousand grams to make three or 30 grams of pigment. That's nuts.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. It's like super labor intensive.
2: Oh yeah. I didn't know that, that blue had that, that, much go in like into the history of getting different
1: colors. Well, because like if you think about they were gathering their, their pigments from raw materials, right?
2: Yeah. Well, how, mm-hmm. how many
1: raw materials are blue? What's blue? Water? The sky? But those things aren't inherently blue like, like dirt is brown. It's just the way that light scatters through those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's not like a blue shell around the earth. Just like, like, so like the only way they could get blue was the lapis lazuli stones that for a long time were only mined in like one region in Afghanistan. So it was like super labor intensive to get it. Um, mm-hmm. Anyways, that, like I said, that's just the nerd in me. Just like, this is so cool that they were able to, to do that stuff. But again, mm-hmm. at that time, that was new technology and just like i play with my ipad i think a lot of painters were just like oh i've got all these colors suddenly available to me yeah i'm go- i'm going to use them all um but like back to monet specifically like those were the innovations in his lifetime those were the new technology that were taking root in his lifetime and as a child and a teen like he earned money making caricatures and portraits of people like he um showed that promise and that skill from an early age But it was kind of like the – I always think of him, like, doing those caricatures. It's kind of like he was, like, a Banksy type of person where, like, people on the streets appreciated his work. But the the Fine Art Academy was not so welcoming of him. Um, The establishment – actually, he was rejected from exhibitions for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, his career early on, he – suffered, he became depressed because like he was not getting the success that that he would have liked in the art world. And you know, it was kind of a mutual thing because he also hated art school and being assigned to do copies of famous works and the traditional like Greek and Roman subjects. Because you know, in that time, like after the Baroque era and stuff, it's like everything needs to be so big and grand and formal, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and the Impressionists, and this is, one of, this is one of those things that, like, it's such a simple idea. It's so easy to forget how kind of revolutionary it was. But they decided to paint, like, the ordinary, everyday people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the landscapes and stuff that, that seemed to be beneath painters. Because the fine artists, they were thinking of, like, we're painting royalty. We're painting important historical mm-hmm. figures and battles and epic significance. Um, and so, like, Monet was just going totally against that. And so he was one of a collection of artists that started to put together, like, a group show of their, their, different, um, their different new revolutionary approach to painting that was supposed to be sort of apolitical and, and just, like, all about painting beautiful pictures, landscapes, ordinary people, and stuff like that. And in 1874, they put together that group exhibition and this is actually where the term Impressionism comes from. The Impressions movement was named for Monet's painting. Did you know that?
2: I did not know that it was specifically from him, no.
1: Yeah, Impression Sunrise. In, in that exhibition, 1874, um, before that, they, they were just calling themselves like Society of Independent... Uh, was it the... So- no, it wasn't Society of Independent Artists. It was something along those lines, you know. Um, And they were putting together an independent art show and a critic hated the work and specifically Monet's impression, Sunrise. And so he titled his, his review, the exhibition of the impressionists and, you know, an impression being kind of a, a rough sketch and Mm -hmm. derisively saying like, these aren't finished paintings. These aren't ready for display. These are just impressions. Because of mm-hmm. the sloppy brushstrokes. Um, that's one of those things that like my students, I don't know about your students, but my students like always look at it and they think like, it's so realistic. It's so beautiful. But at that time, it was like scandal- scandalously sloppy. Yeah. You know, to show all the brushstrokes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so the impressionists, they ran with that. You know, they, they just took on that label and, you know, it's kind of reclaiming the term. You know, not just like hiding from the derisive term, but, but embracing it and redefining it. And so that became the name for their movement that really became one of the most popular out there. Like, it's, you know, people love the Impressionists. Mm.
2: Um,
1: of course, Monet was. I don't know if you did you ever watch the show Seinfeld? not really okay so there's there's this one episode where one of the characters is talking about how he thinks that monet was nearsighted because there's no other reason you would paint things so messy um and and people actually joked about that in his day but he really did have vision problems and it really did affect the way he painted he had cataracts and um he was mocked for his paintings looking so blurry because of his vision problems like today we would talk about that as like discriminating against a person with a disability but he was very distraught over that and so he underwent some surgery in like 1923 he like to correct the cataracts and i guess it left him with um he perceived color differently and so he he wore tinted glasses after that to correct for that vision, but some people say he actually might have been able to see ultraviolet light, which I think is kind of an interesting thing after that which like would explain if you look at his collection of work um after that point the the colors do shift a little bit. There's a, there's a difference in the way he's applying it. And you know, famously he made a si- series of water lilies. Um we're going to look at water lilies in a bit. But I just want to take a moment to point out, like, I always loved this idea that he kept painting for his whole life. Um, he loved that garden. And that that garden, like, he, after he became successful, he didn't rest on his laurels. He kept painting. He made, like, 250 paintings of the water lilies in that garden. And he um, he hired gardeners to bring in plants from all over the world. Like the water lilies from were like from Egypt and South America. And he even hired someone just to go out on a boat in the morning and dust the lily pads before he would go out and paint them. Like that's just kind of the dedication that he had to that garden, which I find, you know, it's not my thing, but you know, to each his his or her own, I just love the fact that like he was that dedicated to his craft So now we're going to shift towards looking at one of his most famous paintings, Water Lilies. And this is, as I said, he did like 250 of them. This is Water Lilies from 1906. This is the one that I see on display at the Art Institute of Chicago when I had a poster of in my bedroom growing up. As you look at it, what jumps out at you?
2: I, for me, it's the colors. I just think, um... The blue that you have that contrasts then with the greens, you have a nice analogous palette going on. And then you've got little specks of some purples and some pinks that come in. I just think the subtlety between the different elements is really, to me, what draws me to his, all of his work, but this one in particular.
1: Yeah, I mean, and looking at this pond, the color scheme definitely caught my eye. That was one of the first things that caught my eye, even as a kid. There's something about that combination of... It's like a cerulean with a Prussian blue that just... Mm-hmm. I, I just always find that combination just gorgeous and soothing. And, and it's this tranquil water. Um, as I've, as I've, I, I look at this more and more, I find it really interesting the way that the lily pads are floating on that water we don't see any horizon line we don't see any ground there is in some ways like a reflection of maybe trees and bushes on the water and so then the blue of the water becomes a sky but it's this interesting sort of like figure ground play where it's like i know these are i know these are water lilies and i know they're floating on a pond but they're also floating compositionally you know what i mean like they're mm-hmm. in that in that sense of like that abstract things go and to me that's mm-hmm. really interesting is the way it's one foot in the representational column and one foot in the abstract column you know yeah like I, and i i start to look at this and i i think you know this was 1906 this was This was at that time when, when, you know, Kandinsky and Picasso and and others were really pushing the boundaries of, you know, what abstract art could be.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I feel like this was in some ways his way of saying like, yeah, I'm still there with you guys. Still keeping up with the new trends a little bit, getting, you know, like I said, because of the way that it's tightly cropped on the water. Like, I think he's mm-hmm. still doing what he loves, but I think he's still a little bit keeping up with the the trend towards greater and greater abstraction. Or at least that's how I see it.
2: No, I definitely see that. I never really looked at it that way. So it's interesting to look at it from that perspective. But it it does have that sense of, like, once you start thinking about it are they floating like in front of something or are they on the water? Like you can see the difference yeah. of how you can like just shifting your perspective on what you're looking at shifts the entire composition of the of the painting. Interesting.
1: Yeah. It, it's one of those ones that I really like his water lilies. Um, much more than most of his, the rest of his body of work. Um what I what I find really interesting is Claude Monet was the first artist I loved as a child and then hated as an art student and now I'm coming back around.
2: Really? Why did you start hating him? The
1: haystacks. Just looking oh. at haystack after haystack. <laughs> um it's one of those things that so like to 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 show my my biases here. I I, I love modernism. I'm I'm very much a modern guy. I grew up in like looking at the, the and a lot of the Western canon, you know, traditionally. But I like things that are conceptual. Um I'm drawn to a lot of that sort of stuff. And I started to find Monet to be unsatisfying as I got older and started to look at it's all about optics, you know, it's all about how we perceive color. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that largely was just due to my shallow read of what he was doing. As I've, as Mm -hmm. I've, as I've grown up and I've matured, I think like, I think he was doing more than I appreciated and like my not picking up on that. That was my failing, not his, you know? Um, but I I think some of his work, I, I feel like really just missed the mark for me. Um but some of it like especially like the water lilies I really really enjoy because it creates this it creates this nice mood. There's there are the expressive qualities to it. Um and but also like I say he's playing with things and and doing things that are I think really interesting. There's a little bit of figure ground play and there's a little bit of like i said the the tension between the realism and the abstraction and and trying to synthesize these different approaches that are in some ways like antithetical or like opposites they don't fit together nicely for for younger listeners um, but i i do find this to be a really nice piece and the other thing i'm noticing like as i as i look at this as much as there's no horizon essentially, you know, there's still a sense of depth. Um, like, we still see those distant lily pads and things like that, that it's hard to say they're less in focus because all of this is a blur of brush strokes in some ways, or maybe that's just because I broke my glasses. Um, so I'm right there with Monet. I'm nearsighted right now. Um, but, like, we do see a slight illusion towards linear perspective because as you look towards the top, those lily pads, the, the ellipse is getting pinched and flattened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, again, it's one of those things where it's like, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. He's clearly aware of, and has internalized all of these different skills and all these different strategies. And he's laying them out there in a way that I find interesting because it, it, it breaks so many rules while still showing that he understands and has mastered those rules.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it does allude to a vanishing point. If you look at the way the lines that are drawn by some of the connections of some of the lily pads, it does give you that sense of perspective that things are traveling back to a point. Yeah, Like it would, yeah.
1: Yeah, like I say, he's he's nodding towards that yeah. the traditional perspective. And like I said, there is a little bit of depth to it, but it's mm-hmm. not it's not in the way that you would learn in the academy, like step by step, like, okay, we're going to vanishing points here, guidelines are going here, you know, parallel connecting lines and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's all very free-flowing free and organic and just... He just he does it in a way that that feels effortless. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's like he's Mm -hmm. doing it by by just pure instinct. But you don't do that so consistently across your body of work by pure instinct. Mm -mm. You know.
2: That's what I enjoy about the impressionists. when I talk to them. Talk to students about them. um, That they do have this feeling in their artwork that it's more about how the artist views the world and then puts what they're seeing on the canvas instead of making it hyper-realistic and how you know how it should be and the expectations of what was the right way to paint and the wrong way to paint i just i I find that about the impressionist to be very interesting
1: yeah it's um what's What's the Italian term, like sprezzatura for that, like studied carelessness? We always got to use big words so that it, as we're talking about our laziness, it sounds really purposeful. Sounds better. <laughs>
2: um, this is what I don't know. <laughs>
1: um, but like there is something about that where the Impressionists in general and, and I think Monet specifically – it looks like it's just like dashed off. It looks like a quick sketch. It looks like, you know, like a momentary impression. Like he's just like, okay, here it is. And and it just plopped out on the canvas that way. But, you know, he made 250 of these. He was studying. He was practicing. And And it's like, there's a lot more work that goes into it that I think is evident in the canvas, but the canvas comes out looking relaxed, looking easy. And, and that, that's soothing and pleasant for me to look at. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels calm. It feels relaxed. It feels like he's having fun, although he's also very carefully working at it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, anything else you want to say about this one? No, I think I'm good. I think we covered it. Right. And I'm wrapping it up. I, I a, just a three-point rating scale. And Where should this hang? The loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the loo? British for that. Thing a, yeah, ways. there's it's a the poop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's
2: terrible. I... I don't know. I'm torn. I definitely think I love it. I think it's beautiful. It belongs in the Louvre, but I do think there's a lot we can learn from Monet, especially the color palettes, how he chose colors, how he used colors, his brush strokes. So I am torn between the two. Can I pick
1: both? Yeah, people break the rules all the time. I'm not a strict guy, in case you haven't noticed. You can ask me anything and I'm just like, sure whatever sure. that sounds good <laughs> um like i i actually i i share that tension um i as i was thinking about this i landed on for this specific piece i feel like this is a museum piece because i feel like this is elevated because of like i said that that cropped composition that I feel like is interesting because he retains all the expressive qualities through, through his brushstrokes through the, you know, deceptively simple composition. It feels relaxed. It feels calm. It feels soothing, but he's doing all these other things that are alluding to a little bit of figure ground play, a little bit of linear perspective and, and all of that, that, that I think elevates it and makes it something I can learn from and enjoy looking at, which is, to me that's what a good museum piece is all about his body of work in general i feel like is more suited towards the lab where like i said you look at how many haystacks did he paint in every different time of day every time of day and every different season and it's like it's like joseph albers it feels like it is this methodical study that we can learn from but oh man wake me up when it's over you know so that's where I land on that.
2: Well,
1: Any other final?
2: <laughs> no, I think I'm good.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate um, it. Was yeah. good talking about Monet. Good to talk to you too. Like get to know you a little bit more. Um, yeah.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website WhoArtEdPodcast.com. Podcast
2: done.